A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's December 2020. Donald Trump continues to deny that he lost the election. He and his inner circle are working feverishly to try to overturn it. Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and others are bringing the big lie to state courts and state legislatures across the country. John Eastman is pushing a baseless legal theory. Trump and Dan Scavino are tweeting away, provoking supporters and spurring them to action. And largely out of sight, there's another effort underway. Trump is leaning on his attorney general, Bill Barr, to investigate alleged election fraud. He transmits conspiracy theories and demands that Barr find evidence to support them. This is total fraud. And how the FBI and Department of Justice, I don't know, maybe they're involved. You you would think if you're in the FBI or Department of Justice, this this is the biggest thing you could be looking at. Where are they? I've not seen anything. Barr is pushing back, insisting that investigations were not finding fraud, quietly at first. But Trump won't back down. I had three discussions with the president that I can recall. And in that context, I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. Eventually, Barr can't take it anymore. He gives an interview to the Associated Press. Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, has just debunked President Trump's claims of widespread election fraud. In an interview with the Associated Press, he said, quote, to date, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. So Trump begins his pressure campaign against his new acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, and Rosen's deputy, Richard Donahue. But they, too refuse to find fraud where there is none. As then-acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue would later explain to the January 6th committee. And I said something to the effect of, sir, we've done dozens of investigations, hundreds of interviews. The major allegations are not supported by the evidence developed. Trump is getting more and more irate. Then, on December 21st, he meets a man named Jeffrey Clark. Suddenly, the full might of the Justice Department is within reach, and he plans to use it. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is The Aftermath, Episode 4, The Hidden Insurrection. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. So Trump is down one attorney general who has dismissed his claims of fraud. Now, The new leadership of the department, acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen and acting Deputy Richard Donahue, aren't being any more compliant. As Donahue later tells Representative Adam Kinzinger at a January 6th committee hearing. Uh, You also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. How did the president respond to that, sir? 
He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. But Rosen and Donahue won't budge. The evidence, they tell Trump, just isn't there. Then the ground begins to shift. On December 21st, 11 members of Congress meet with Trump in the Oval Office to discuss their plans to object to electoral count votes. The next day, at the prompting of one of those members, Pennsylvania Representative Scott Perry, Trump meets with someone more amenable to doing his bidding, a Justice Department lawyer named Jeffrey Clark. You know, who is Jeff Clark is a great question because he's a name that nobody should have ever known. That's the voice of Katie Benner, a reporter for The New York Times covering the Justice Department. He was running the Environmental Natural Resources Division for the Justice Department in the latter half of the Trump administration. And then because so many people were leaving the department, there was so much turnover at the end, he became the acting head of the civil division as well. Clark has one distinction that makes him stand out. He's one of the few lawyers inside the Justice Department who believes that the election was really stolen, even though he has played no part in the investigations into election fraud. He believes that Trump was right to keep pushing the department to investigate wild theories. He believes that a deep state was plotting against Trump. And he is willing to act on those beliefs. So Trump meets him, likes him, likes his attitude, likes his can-do attitude, I guess is how you'd put it, and his and the fact that he's willing to tell the former president that, in fact, not only did he probably win, but that there's a way to prove it. And that's basically what Trump wants to hear. Congressman Perry doesn't stop after engineering a first meeting between Trump and Clark. He begins a campaign. As January 6th committee member Adam Kinzinger would later describe... Representative Perry was urging Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to elevate Clark within the Department of Justice. Representative Perry requested that Mr. Clark be elevated within the department. Representative Perry tells Mr. Meadows on December 26th that, quote, Mark, just checking in as time continues to count down. 11 days to January 6th and 25 days to inauguration, we've got to get going. Representative Perry followed up and says, quote, Mark, you should call Jeff. Meanwhile, Rosen and Donahue still won't bow to Trump's demands. So you see Trump in this time pushing people out who are telling him the truth. Former Attorney General Bill Barr, former White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, the Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen, saying to them, okay, you keep telling me I lost. This is not the message I want to hear. And then drawing closer to him, people who are saying, we think you won and we think we can keep you in the the office. As Trump pushes his advisors out, he pulls Clark in. They start having meetings at the White House, but Clark doesn't tell his boss. This isn't just a breach of decorum. Clark's meetings with the president actually violate several Justice Department policies. The basic idea of those policies is that there's a strict hierarchy and chain of command. The attorney general, or in this case, the acting attorney general, is supposed to speak for the department when it comes to communicating with the president. It's one of the things that reinforces the Justice Department's traditional independence. Eventually, 
Rosen and Donahue find out about the meetings. They know that Donald Trump has lost, and they're really starting to grapple with the idea that one of their own, Justice Department kind of holds itself up above many other agencies as the most rational, the most educated, the most lawyerly, the, kind of the smartest. They're like the valedictorians. So the idea that that there's a guy there who believes incredibly insane conspiracy theories and is trying to help overturn a free and fair election is just something that's really hard for them to understand. They're grappling with it. They're scolding him. They're telling him to not talk to the president anymore. Clark ignores them. He keeps meeting with the president, and he keeps pursuing those baseless conspiracy theories. Clark is conducting his own investigations, calling his own witnesses, even demanding a meeting with the director of national intelligence to look into purported foreign election interference. But there's one plan that comes very close to succeeding. It's a letter, originally drafted by another DOJ lawyer, Kenneth Klukowski. Clark wants the Justice Department to send the letter to state legislators in Georgia. The letter falsely states that DOJ had identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election in their state. The letter also recommended that the legislature convene a special session to investigate them. And it said that the state had competing slates of electors who had sent their ballots to Washington to be counted on January 6th one set for Biden, and one set for Trump. This may sound a little familiar. It's part of the very same fake elector scheme we talked about in episode two, the scheme orchestrated by John Eastman. As it turns out, Eastman and Klukowski used to work together, and Klukowski's letter would have been a huge boon to Eastman's fake elector scheme. Instead of a pressure campaign on states led by Trump campaign lawyers, like Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, it would have brought the credibility and authority of the U.S. Justice Department to bear. January 6th Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney would later ask Donahue about this letter. Mr. Donahue, on December 28th, Mr. Clark emailed you and Mr. Rosen a draft letter that he wanted you to sign uh, and send to Georgia state officials. You testified that this could have, quote, grave constitutional consequences. Mr. Donahue, can you tell us what you meant by that? Um, There were, in my response, I explained a number of reasons this is not the department's role um, to suggest or dictate to state legislatures how they should select their electors. Uh, But more importantly, this was not based on fact. This was actually contrary to the facts as developed by department investigations over the last several weeks and months. Um, So I responded to that, and for the department to insert itself into the political process this way, I think would have had grave consequences for the country. It may very well have spiraled us into a constitutional crisis, and I wanted to make sure that he understood the gravity of the situation because he didn't seem to really appreciate it. Again, Clark disregards his bosses. Then, on January 3rd, He informs them that Trump has offered him the job of acting attorney general, Rosen's job. But he has a proposal for his bosses. If they agree to send the letter, he will decline to replace them. Here's how Rosen later described his reaction. Well, uh, you know, on the one hand, I wasn't going to accept being fired by my subordinate, so I wanted to talk to the the president directly. Um, With regard to... Uh, the reason for that, 
is I wanted to try to convince the president not to go down the wrong path that Mr. Clark seemed to be advocating. Um, and it wasn't about me. There's only 17 days left in the administration at that point. I would have been perfectly content to have either of the gentlemen on my left or right replace me if, if anybody wanted to do that. But I did not want for the Department of Justice to be put in a posture where it would be doing things that were not consistent with the truth, were not consistent with its own uh, appropriate role, or were not consistent with the Constitution. So Rosen calls Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and demands a meeting with Trump. Then he calls White House counsel Pat Cipollone, then Steve Engel, the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. And he convenes a call of the senior Justice Department leadership. He has another aide basically inform the rest of the top of the Justice Department that this is happening, that there's going to be this meeting, that there'd be a huge change at the Justice Department, and to ask them to start thinking about what they're going to do. And they decide that if this happens, they're all going to quit. They're going to resign in protest because it would be so egregious for this change to happen. So on January 3rd, Rosen and his colleagues enter the meeting at the White House, armed with the threat of mass resignations at the Justice Department if Trump goes forward with his plan to have Clark replace him. The scene in the Oval Office isn't pretty. It goes on for hours. At first, the conversation focuses on specific allegations, more claims of fraud, more demands for investigations. The conversation at this point was really about whether the president should remove Jeff Rosen and replace him with Jeff Clark. And everyone in the room, I think, understood that that meant that letter would go out. Early on, the president said, what do I have to lose? And it was actually a good opening because I said, Mr. President, you have a great deal to lose. And I began to explain to him what he had to lose um, and what the country had to lose and what the department had to lose. And this was not in anyone's best interest. Then, the conversation turns to Clark himself. Donahue tells Trump, he's not qualified. He's not competent. At this point, the conversation gets heated. And so I said, Mr. President, you're talking about putting a man in that seat who has never tried a criminal case, who's never conducted a criminal investigation. He's telling you that he's going to take charge of the department, 115,000 employees, including the entire FBI, and turn the place on a dime and conduct nationwide criminal investigations that will produce results in a matter of days. It's impossible, it's absurd, it's not going to happen, and it's going to fail. And the officials make one last argument against installing Clark. If you replace Rosen with Clark, they tell Trump, there will be a mass exodus from the department. First of the leadership, then maybe of U.S. attorneys all over the country than hundreds of employees of the department. It will hurt Trump's image. That seems to resonate with Trump, as Katie Benner explains. And then you have a third official who is willing to say that, in addition to all the arguments about fraud, the president may or may not want to consider that the Justice Department's leadership will resign, and that this will not only cause chaos at the Justice Department, which Trump may or may not care about, but it will overshadow Trump's accomplishments and it will overshadow his administration and it will make him look unprofessional and it will make him look bad. 
And these are the kinds of arguments that Trump really understands. Steve Engel makes one more point. It's not going to help Trump do what he wants to do. As he later tells the January 6th committee, All anyone is going to sort of think about when they see this, no one is going to read this letter. All anyone is going to think is that you went through two attorneys general in two weeks until you found the environmental guy to sign this thing. And so the story is not going to be that the Department of Justice has found massive corruption that would have changed the results of the election. It's going to be the disaster uh, of Jeff Clark. It's enough to convince Trump to change course. Here's Katie Benner. And so at the end of the day, he decides not to make the change, which is this sort of like weird, almost like anticlimactic moment because they've been fighting, they've been arguing, they've been screaming, so much is at stake. And then this is very Trump. He just says, okay, I'm not going to do it. Fine. Like this meeting's adjourned. You know, he's upset again. He's like, why aren't these lawyers working for me? (laughs) Look at what I have to deal with. But at the same time, he understands that this is not going to be an idea that works for him. You know, he's told not only will it overshadow his accomplishments, nobody will be thinking about whether or not he won the election or all these allegations of fraud. They're just going to be thinking that he has wrought this incredible chaos. So the status quo remains in place. Rosen leaves the meeting as acting attorney general. None of the top DOJ leadership positions have changed. Even Clark still has his job. And so everybody then goes home and they all, from January 3rd on, go back to the office and go to work, including Jeff Clark, for the remaining couple of weeks of the presidency. A bizarre, strange uncomfortable ending, I think, for everyone. There was a real hope that if they could just get through to January 20th, everything would be okay. You know, figure out the last national security cases that need to be taken care of, what can actually happen. Kind of the bare minimum was getting done. Of course, all of this is happening behind the scenes, out of public sight. So certainly, when you look at those days immediately following this big fight at the White House. They're working under a couple of of interesting principles and illusions, this principle of like, we need to stay above the political fray. What good would it do at this point? We know that he lost. We know he's going to leave the White House. We know Joe Biden's going to become the president. Why fuel this fire? And this is one of the delusions shouldn't the American public by now know that the guy is crazy? Why do we have to say that? What would the point of that be? All it would do is taint the department and bring us down into the mire of this somewhat ridiculous argument about the election. When everybody knows, they think, that Joe Biden won. That really, that is both kind of like an ultimate and shocking moment where you see this dedication to this principle that the Justice Department doesn't get involved in political matters or in political muck lead to decisions that in hindsight don't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, what would be more important than informing the American people that the lame duck president just tried to overthrow the Justice Department in order to undo an election and cling to power. So when January 6th arrives three days later, the American people had no idea 
There had been an attempted insurrection inside the Justice Department, too. And we are going to fight like hell against the tyrannical Democrats and any Republicans who do deals with them. It will be your peril if you underestimate this movement again. After the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, the government is shaken up. For many, even some members of Trump's cabinet, the attack on the Capitol is a breaking point. We cannot overstate this. This is a White House in chaos. Peter just mentioned it. Multiple officials resigning overnight after President Trump failed to deliver a full-throated... Of course, for some people, it's a different kind of breaking point. Having failed to depose Rosen, Jeffrey Clark resigns from the department on January 14th which just so happens to be the day after the House of Representatives voted to impeach Donald Trump. Meanwhile, law enforcement is focused on the rioters. On January 7th, the FBI and D.C. Metropolitan Police Department ask for the public's help identifying the rioters. By January 8th, 13 rioters are charged in federal court in D.C., and 40 more are arrested and charged in Superior Court urgent plea from the FBI, releasing graphic new video of the Capitol riot, asking for the public's help in identifying 10 suspects who are seen brutally attacking police officers. Our congressional correspondent... But inside main justice, lawyers are just trying to get to Biden's inauguration. The appointed officials, so White House Counsel's Office, Justice Department, they are staunch in their belief that Donald Trump lost the election, and now they really just want to see him leave office. They're they're like, at this point, we're babysitting for the last 14 days of this administration to make sure that nothing else goes wrong and to make sure that the inauguration can even happen, that we're not beset by another group of rioters. So it was all hands on board. They were all working around the clock to try to make sure that the national security concerns created by January 6th were taken care of. But they were done with Trump, and they really hoped that after January 6th, he would not be heard from again. But not everyone feels that way. However, what's so interesting about Trump world is there's a group of loyalists, it's Rudy Giuliani, it's others, it's Jeff Clark, John Eastman, who stick with him, stand by him. And they are in his ear trying to figure out not only whether or not there's still a way for him to prove that there was election fraud, whether or not there's a way for him to make further claims. In the coming months and years, it's these loyalists whose names will appear in committee reports, disciplinary proceedings, civil suits, and even criminal indictments. But not all are treated equally, and not all are held to account. So what's happened since January 6th? Or, if we're going by the attempted Justice Department insurrection, since January 3rd? Some of the search for accountability starts at the very beginning of the Biden administration. With a fence around the Capitol building and heightened security, Biden is inaugurated just days after the attack. In his first address to the nation as president, Biden emphasizes unity moving forward. On this hallowed ground where just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful transfer of power 
as we have for more than two centuries. But some of the search for accountability can't get off the ground yet for one simple reason. This is a new administration. Government agencies are led by political appointees who require Senate confirmation. And that process takes time, especially when many senators are in no hurry to help. Biden announces his picks for attorney general and deputy attorney general even before he becomes president. For attorney general, he chooses Merrick Garland, a longtime judge on the D.C. Circuit. Remember, Obama had nominated Garland for a Supreme Court justice. The Senate had refused to confirm him. And for deputy attorney general, he chooses Lisa Monaco, Obama's Homeland Security advisor, and, like Garland, a former Justice Department official across multiple administrations. But Garland isn't confirmed until March 11th, and Monaco until April 20th. For Garland, that's 64 days between the attack and his authority to take action in response. That's even more of a problem than it would have been in any other administration. The Senate is dragging its feet on confirming Biden's appointees, and the new administration is trying to get into place as best it can despite the delays. The transition from Trump to Biden has an additional challenge. Just days after the election was called for Biden, Trump had ordered his senior government officials to refuse to cooperate with the Biden transition team. So for almost three months after Biden is inaugurated, the Justice Department is hobbled by personnel problems. Lawmakers questioned his picks for Secretary of State, Treasury, Defense, and Homeland Security, as well as Mr. Biden's pick for Director of National Intelligence. While all are likely to be confirmed by the full Senate, it won't be before the president-elect officially takes office. There's at least one part of the department that remains in high gear. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia and the FBI's Washington Field Office. They are investigating and prosecuting those who participated in the attack. In the two months after January 6th, federal agents conduct 709 searches, identify 885 likely suspects, and charge 278 rioters. It's the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, not Maine Justice, that is responsible for prosecuting January 6th during this time. It's all happening under the direction of D.C. U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin. What's more, Sherwin, even at the very nascent stages of the investigation, acknowledges Trump's potential culpability. Has the role of former President Trump been part of your investigation? It's unequivocal that Trump was the magnet that brought the people to D.C. on the 6th. Now the question is, is he criminally culpable for everything that happened during the siege, during the breach? What I can tell you is this, based upon, again, what we see in the public record and what we see in public statements in court, we have plenty of people, we have soccer moms from Ohio that were arrested saying, well, I did this because my president said I had to take back our house. But eventually, it becomes clear that prosecutors have developed an investigative strategy that will postpone the question of Trump's possible criminal liability, and also that of those including at the Justice Department, who worked with him. They decide to go from the bottom up, to start with the people who actually attacked the Capitol, and follow the facts up the chain to find out who sent them there. That puts the federal criminal questions off, at least for a time. 
Besides, it seems like there's a decent chance Trump may recede from the scene. Even his most stalwart backers in Congress are disavowing him. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. That President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. So maybe criminal investigations of Trump and his inner circle, people like Jeffrey Clark, are not so urgent. Maybe the Justice Department can avoid the morass, at least for now. Merrick Garland is finally confirmed in March, and he immediately delivers a clear message to the American people. Be patient. Have faith in us. We got this. We're going to reestablish the rule of law by reestablishing the norms of the department, by going back to the way we've always done things. The first attorneys general appointed after Watergate had enunciated the norms that would ensure the department's adherence to the rule of law. Attorney General Civiletti undertook to continue their work of crafting those norms into written policies. Those policies included guaranteeing the independence of the department from partisan influence in law enforcement investigations. Besides, criminal prosecutions aren't the only way to pursue accountability for the attempted DOJ insurrection on January 3rd. The first step is publicity, which actually comes pretty quickly. The New York Times publishes an article by Katie Benner that jump-starts these efforts. She reports that Clark had tried to involve the Justice Department in efforts to overturn the 2020 election results and plotted with Trump to oust acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. Donald Trump's attempts to subvert the 2020 election results and declare himself the winner are being investigated by the Department of Justice's Inspector General, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. My guest, New York Times reporter Katie Benner, broke the story that led to investigations. That article revealed that Jeffrey Clark... Three days later, on January 25th, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz announces that he is launching an investigation into what happened at DOJ itself. Unlike other leadership positions in the department, like Garland and Monaco's, which are mostly still vacant... Horowitz has held his position since 2012. He is ready to go. I don't think there's any resistance at the Justice Department into looking at Jeff Clark. I, you know, he, he personally betrayed so many people there that he worked with. They were so shocked by his behavior and so appalled by it. Uh, but I think most of all, they thought that what he'd done was wrong. And so I don't think there was resistance to investigating him. Another effort at accountability comes around the same time. This one in Congress. On January 23, 2021, the Senate Judiciary Committee issues its first document requests to the Justice Department. The department eventually produces several hundred pages of documents. The investigation also includes closed-door interviews with officials like Rosen and Donahue. Clark, though, refuses to sit for an interview. The committee would release its final report in October 2021, summarizing the findings of its investigation. Here's Judiciary Committee Chairman, Senator Dick Durbin. Our Senate Judiciary Committee, which I chair, documented this attempt to subvert the Justice Department in an eight-month investigation 
and report that we produced last fall. We produced this report in a bipartisan fashion, inviting Republican and Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary. But there's one problem. And if you've listened to past episodes of The Aftermath, it's a familiar one. The report isn't actually issued by the entire Judiciary Committee. It's a product of the majority staff. That is, the Democrats. So right away, the credibility of its findings gets attacked. Nonetheless, the report isn't without impact. As with other congressional efforts, the investigation and its results draw attention to the issue, tell the definitive story of what happened, and assign accountability through naming and shaming. One of the people it names and shames? Jeffrey Clark. In the report, the majority staff says, And they resisted Donald Trump's plan to replace Jeffrey Rosen with the big lie lawyer Jeffrey Clark who wanted the Justice Department to help overturn the election. It goes one step farther. Of only four recommendations it makes, one of them is dedicated entirely to Jeffrey Clark. The report alleges that based on its findings, Clark's conduct may have violated several rules of professional conduct. These are the ethical rules governing lawyers. Breaking them can lead to disbarment. The report called on the D.C. Bar's Disciplinary Committee to open an investigation into Clark. Here's Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, who has been closely monitoring bar discipline proceedings after January 6th. And then almost exactly a month later, near the end of July, the D.C. Bar releases this disciplinary complaint against him, saying that he violated Rule 8.4 of D.C.'s Rules of Professional Conduct. So that's prohibiting conduct involving dishonesty and also conduct that would seriously interfere with the administration of justice. So in summer 2022, a year and a half after the infamous January 3rd meeting in the Oval Office, Jeffrey Clark is facing accountability from multiple sources. He's the central character of a January 6th committee hearing that millions of Americans watched on TV. The D.C. bar is coming after his law license. And then... After this disciplinary process has begun, things move very, very slowly. There's kind of this big splash, and then it all gets drawn out and snarled up in really procedural matters. And a lot of that has to do with what I think it's fair to say are intentional efforts by Clark to drag things out. So the main effort here is he removes the case to federal court, arguing that the D.C. bar doesn't have authority to discipline him because he was acting as an employee of the federal government. I think it's fair to say that this is a pretty novel legal theory. In other words, Clark argues that the D.C. bar, the only bar that could plausibly discipline him for ethical violations, is powerless against him. It amounts to a claim that any federal government lawyer can't be penalized for breaking their professional obligations. And the federal district court in D.C. takes that view as well and eventually says, you know, no dice, you're, you're going to go back to the bar authorities. But the problem is that that eats up a pretty significant amount of time. Clark continues to do whatever he can to delay the proceedings against him. And in yet another effort to delay these proceedings... 
Clark cites what is actually the most important mechanism of accountability so far, his indictment in Fulton County, Georgia. On August 14, 2023, Clark and 18 others were charged for attempting to subvert the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. Specifically, the indictment brings felony charges against Donald John Trump, Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani, John Charles Eastman, Mark Randall Meadows, John Cheeseboro, Jeffrey Clark, Jenna Lynn Ellis. Clark argues that the bar discipline case should be put on hold until the Georgia case has been resolved because, as he says, they involve substantially the same allegations. Therefore, he claims, his defense in the disciplinary proceedings would expose his defense to the Fulton County District Attorney, which might deprive him of his Fifth Amendment rights. His delay tactics are effective. As of the time of this recording, Clark's bar discipline trial still hasn't happened, and things aren't moving any faster in the Fulton County case. It's also mired in pretrial proceedings. Meanwhile, what's been going on at the Justice Department this whole time? Is anyone investigating the January 3rd insurrection as a potential criminal matter? Inside the department, up until the hearings, Garland had been having these weekly and sometimes daily meetings about the J6 investigation. He was very interested in everything people were finding, but because of the decision to go bottoms up, Donald Trump wasn't really mentioned in these meetings. You know, I spoke to some people who said they felt that Donald Trump's name could not be said in these meetings, that it would be too uncomfortable. Now, again, when I discussed this with DOJ officials, they pushed back really hard and they were like, but nobody ever told people they couldn't talk about Donald Trump in meetings. So it's not clear what, if anything, the Justice Department is doing about Trump or Clark. And there's been radio silence from the Inspector General's office. No one knows if Horowitz's investigation has uncovered evidence of potential criminal activity. Until June 22, 2022. The probe also inching closer to Trump as investigators raided Jeffrey Clark's home, the former DOJ official who pushed Donald Trump's voter fraud claims. They even brought along something, Tucker, I've never seen before uh, or heard of, a uh, electronic sniffing dog. And uh, they took all of the electronics from my house. Ironically, the very next day, June 23, 2022, the January 6th committee delivers its extraordinarily detailed account of what happened at the Oval Office meeting on January 3rd. Rosen and Donahue, who would undoubtedly be key witnesses in any potential criminal investigation, had testified under oath. But the select committee doesn't have the authority to initiate a criminal case. And remember Representative Scott Perry, the guy who introduced Clark to Trump in the first place, who pushed for Clark to be elevated within DOJ. In August 2022, FBI agents seized Perry's cell phone as part of its investigation into efforts to subvert the 2020 election. Perry challenged the seizure in D.C. District Court, arguing that prosecutors' attempts to access these records violated his immunity under the Speech or Debate Clause a provision of the Constitution that protects what members of Congress say in certain circumstances. The case was eventually brought to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, 
which found that the investigators could have access to only about three-quarters of the messages, but that Perry could withhold others under the speech or debate clause. What's more, Perry refused to cooperate with the January 6th committee's investigation, calling the committee illegitimate. It all begs the question, is the Justice Department going to do anything now? We know now that less than nine months later, Special Counsel Jack Smith would announce the indictment of Donald Trump. No one else would be charged in the indictment. But buried in the recitation of criminal acts alleged are a few paragraphs telling the story of co-conspirator four. Co-conspirator number four on this list is someone we've talked about a lot. Former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. The indictment identifies him as a Justice Justice Department official. It also points to an email that a top... And the indictment adds a new detail about that January 3rd meeting. It alleges that when warned that Trump staying in office would lead to riots in every major American city, co-conspirator four responded, quote, that's why there's an Insurrection Act. In other words, Trump could invoke a statute that allows the president to send the U.S. military onto American streets to suppress civil unrest among the electorate. As for Congressman Perry, he has not, at the time of this recording, been indicted by the Justice Department. He's faced no disciplinary action and remains a prominent member of the House of Representatives. He even served as the chair of the House Freedom Caucus. Which brings us to another question of accountability. Has the Justice Department done anything to correct its own weaknesses, those that had been exposed by Clark's near-successful attempted coup on January 3rd? This is one of the funny things about the department. The answer is no. <laughs> you, would, you would think, you would think uh, that, you know, after a massively disruptive, extremely volatile time, that everybody would sort of put their heads together and try to figure out what had happened. That didn't happen. They do make at least one change. In July, Garland and White House counsel Dana Remus update and reissue the White House contacts policy, which impose clearer limitations on which officials can have direct contact with the president and under what circumstances. And there may be more changes like that. But if so, they're being done quietly. Somewhere along the line, someone decided that the Justice Department did not need to demonstrate to the American people that it was concerned about its own integrity as an institution. The Justice Department is the piece of the executive branch that directly speaks to what makes American democracy function, right? The rule of law that without fear or favor, all people are subject to the rule of law and should be treated equally under the law. Now, there have been a lot of times in American history when we've seen that that's absolutely not true or where we've not lived up to that ideal. And I think that what we've seen is that that's had a really lasting impact on the department and on the American public's faith in the department. Now, inside the department, they would say, it doesn't matter. We are acting as we should. It has not had a lasting impact on us. But what I think that nobody wants to say is that if the American people lose their faith in the department, it really doesn't matter if it's acting as it should or not. If nobody believes the testimony of an FBI agent, if nobody believes in an indictment brought by the department, if nobody believes the department is acting apolitically, 
then suddenly the department's ideals don't matter. And then that speaks directly again to whether or not we have a functioning democracy that Americans have faith in. So where do we stand now? The D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office has continued prosecuting rioters in massive numbers, which we'll talk about in our next episode. A special counsel eventually took up the question of Trump's criminal liability, albeit not until two and a half years after the conduct occurred. The people behind the attempted insurrection inside the Justice Department have continued to evade accountability. The department itself has decided that it will restore public faith in the rule of law by resuming its normal practices. So what does all that mean? It depends on your perspective. Is the story of these two attempted insurrections, one at the Capitol, one inside the Justice Department, a story of institutional strength, of the rule of law prevailing? Or is it a story of institutions coming to the brink of collapse? of the rule of law being exposed as a hollow construct. You decide. The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Series executive producers are Benjamin Wittes and me. Production and story editing at Goat Rodeo from Max Johnston. Senior producers are Catherine Pompilio of Lawfare and Megan Nadolsky and Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Scripting by me, Catherine Pompilio, and Benjamin Wittes. Additional production assistance from Isabel Kirby-McGowan, Jay Venables, Kara Schillen, Anna Hickey, and Maya Nicholson. Cover art by Ian Enright. To learn more about Lawfare or to support our work, visit our website at lawfaremedia.org. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.